Hey teachers, welcome to the teacher's room. So today we're meeting with three teachers to talk about pronunciation. We're going to be sharing some stories and tips and information about uh, common problems that students have when it comes to pronunciation, but we'll also be sharing some ideas for helping our students uh, learn to pronounce English words as best they can, as, as best uh, we can help them. So I'd like to have our three pronunciation experts <laughs> introduce themselves. Okay. Go ahead. I'm Lauren Johnson from Seattle. I've just recently joined TLC and uh, I've been teaching English for about five years in four different countries. Awesome. Uh, I'm Miranda Marine. I'm from New York City. I just joined TLC as well and I've been teaching English for three years. Awesome. Hi, I'm uh, Darcy Chow. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. I've been working at TLC for over a year now, and in general, I've been teaching for just over a couple years. Awesome, great. Well, thank you guys for, for joining today. Thank you. So I want to ask first, what are some common pronunciation difficulties, maybe, that you've noticed Spanish-speaking students have when it comes to learning to pronounce English words? I think one of the most typical errors of Hispanohablantes is, uh, <laughs> what's the English word for that? Like Spanish speakers? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that they don't do a lot of vowels correctly. Mm -hmm. So I recently read that in Spanish there are five vowels, and in English there are 14. Exactly. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. And um, an example that I love to cite is from Modern Family. Yeah. From uh, Do you guys know Modern Family? Yeah. There's the character from Columbia, Gloria, mm -hmm. and her nephew's name is Luke, and she tries to get his attention and point something out to him, and she says, Luke, Luke. <laughs> yeah, so they're both, that's, it should be Luke, look, but right. they're pronounced the same for her. Yeah, Definitely. good example. Yeah, I think in general, I agree with that. Spanish speakers, they have problems with the long and the short vowels, mm. where they don't really differentiate between them, because in Spanish, it's more consistent, and in English, we have a lot of, some patterns, but it's a lot of inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, another one I've noticed, which, was more when students were writing rather than saying something, okay. is they would use a D instead of a TH. Ah. So I'd say weather, and it would sound like they were saying weather, but then when they would write it, it would be with a D. Yeah. So they were hearing a D sound instead of a th. That's so interesting. The more that you look at the reasons behind why students are choosing to write different letters uh, to make up the spelling of words, is the way that they pronounce that letter specifically in Spanish. When you make a D sound in English, your mouth is quite closed and your tongue is sort of hitting the roof of your mouth. But in Spanish, the D sound comes from the tongue and the teeth sort of uh, slightly vibrating, like we would make a, almost a TH sound with the word like though. So yeah, that's interesting that they hear that sound and apply a D to it. I think other super common ones that most teachers uh, have experienced would be the difference between V and mm, B. Yeah. Also, another one that I have a student struggling with now is the pronunciation of the word wood. Exactly, yeah, or even like a G instead mm. of W. Oh, yeah. yeah. The SH versus the CH. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Any other ones you can think of? 
there's like the really stereotypical one, although it is a real thing, we're putting the S sound before S sounds. Yeah. And I, we were talking about this earlier, and it's not that there aren't words that start with S, but rather words that are similar, like um, space versus espacio. Uh, it yeah. is a word that sounds similar that starts with that S sound, so they just transfer that over Right, English. right. Yeah. And that really only happens um, in Spanish where, like, words like Santiago, for example, it's an S plus a vowel, and there they aren't tempted to make the S Santiago uh, sound, whereas with Espacio, it's an S plus a consonant combination. Yeah. I think for... Um more basic level students or starters. Sometimes they just translate, I guess, with their mind, the J sound in English into a Y sound. Yeah. But I think that's pretty easy to get out of them pretty yeah. fast. Yeah. And also sort of the reverse, where a typical one that I, I can think of is um, the word young mm -hmm. and pronouncing it like jung. Mm. Um, yeah. What's that called? Jaismo? Yeismo? There's a word for it in Spanish, I think. Oh, so in, I don't in know Castilian that. Spanish, those are two different sounds, but in Latin America, it's just become in many places one sound. Mm. And it's oh. like halfway between a J and a Y. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And for people who can't pronounce it, they're called yeismos or something by Spanish. Interesting. People. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Mm. Cool. I think another common Spanish um, error is for the ed endings mm. for words in the past tense or some adjectives. Yeah. They always use the id pronunciation instead yeah. of the d or t. Right. It's like really in common. walk id. Yeah, exactly. For example, instead of walked. Yeah. Exactly. Why is that happening? Uh, I think that happens to a lot of people in who from any language. When mm. I was in China, I noticed that a lot as well. It's just because it's a difficult rule to remember. Yeah. That's like one of the most difficult processes we have to learn as as learners of English is when to say t, d, or ud. Exactly, yeah. I've always attributed that mistake to Spanish speakers being used to a phonetic language. Yeah, pronouncing you know, every Exactly. Letter, yeah. Seeing a word and saying, oh, yeah. that's just how you yeah. say it. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that a lot. They'll read it phonetically, because in exactly. Spanish, yeah. it makes the same sound every time. Right. So then you look at a word in English, and you're like, well, no, not this time. <laughs> That's silent. Ignore that letter. And another problem with that is that it's so complicated, the rule, that a lot of the times, teachers don't know how to explain it. Right. And even if teachers do know, like, like I do know how to explain it. I learned that in school, but... It's so technical, it's hard to explain to a student. Like, yeah. you're, you're only supposed to add a D or a ud sound when it's like a sibilant, which is anything that's close to an S, like ch, sh, j, all of these things. So it's hard to explain what a sibilant is to a student who's like in right. beginner elementary. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. No, 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 we just use sibilants. Right? <laughs> Come on, it's yeah. quite simple. But yeah. I'm curious if. Um, if you guys think it's important to talk about that specific pronunciation problem because if they mispronounce the ed endings people will still understand yeah. them mm -hmm. of course it's not correct per se but it doesn't interfere with um, comprehension mm -hmm. so usually I, I wouldn't really talk about that with lower level students at first yeah um, I think I think always we sort of have to be careful about uh, 
ignoring errors for too long before they develop into habits. Because when you're used to, when you get used to saying something in a certain way, it just feels natural because you've said that, you know, 300 times. And then when you finally learn that it's not correct and you work on correcting it, you sort of have to go against what sounded right. or felt correct to you. Because we all go by that rule of, I just know that that's wrong because it doesn't sound right. But then when we allow students to build up that, like, that sounds right because I've said it 300 ways, and then we tell them it's not actually right. It's a little tricky. That's true. And you can't let it become fossilized. Yeah. And it's not just in your head. There actually is some muscle memory going on there. Right. You need to build muscles to be able to produce new sounds. Exactly. That's actually like, um, there was this really interesting study done in the UK about that where they took English speakers from all over the world yeah. and did um, ultrasounds of their mouth and throat as they were saying the same words to yeah. compare how they act, they like use their tongue and their vocal cords and their jaw differently. Yeah. And that they couldn't say it a different way without really trying because it's all ingrained in how you pronounce that sound. Yeah, I find that so incredible. I mentioned to you guys before this idea, I, I sort of, before knowing that, I labeled it like the Spanish mouth or the English mouth, and I think that's why it's so difficult for a new learner to start pronouncing words in another language correctly, because they're using, if I, you know, I'm an English speaker, but if I try to learn uh, Russian, I'm going to be using my English mouth the, the muscles that I'm used to using and the tongue, teeth, whatever formations I'm used to using to make Russian sounds, that's not going to work. Um, so that's why our students have a lot of trouble. That's such an interesting study to bring up because I think that really shows us, like Lauren said, it's not about necessarily remembering how to pronounce a word. It's sort of teaching or I guess strengthening those muscles yeah. to make those formations and to make those sounds. Yeah. And you know, I recently read as well that if a student is really properly learning a sound that they haven't acquired before, that it should hurt. That they should yeah. they should actually feel sore. And I do remember when I was studying French, we had to learn how to make those R's. Yeah. Um, that it for those first couple weeks it really did hurt. I'd, I'd leave French class in my my throat would be sore, you know? Huh. So it's it's actually physically straining for the students, I think, too. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point to consider. I mean, as teachers, especially if we haven't gone through the process of learning a lot, another language, we can't really relate or understand on that level what they're going through. So that's a good thought to consider for other teachers. There's also, like, the difference between how they're hearing the sound they're producing and maybe what they're actually producing. Yeah. Like, I had a Japanese student, an L and R, very difficult because yeah. they it's like an in-between sound. Mm. And he really thought he was hitting that rrr sound, and he wasn't, but he was so sure that's what it sounded like. Yeah. So wow. there's also that disconnect. Huh. Did you record 
that student sang that sound and ask him? Yeah, I would. Uh, we did some recordings, and then we also would listen to other people yeah. sing them. And he'd be like, "Oh, that's an L." I'm like, "No, that's that's read, not lead." Oh wow! And it was so. And other students I've had that were Japanese didn't have that problem. So it, it does depend. But he had such a hard time hearing the difference in those sounds. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's a called uh, allophonic relationship. It's because the L and L and R are in that language two kind of versions of the same letter. So they sound the same. But it's almost like um, if, we, if we hear a Spanish speaker and they're not pronouncing an H correctly, they're pronouncing it more like a Spanish J, like H. If, when we hear that, if they say hello, you don't think there's a, you don't go, what, what word is he saying? You know? Right. We just, we just lump that H in with H. Right. So that's what they do kind of with L and R. I see. Yeah. They, they know those are, they don't even really know those are different sounds. They just kind of all sound like one sound to them. The problem ends up coming when you can't tell if they're saying lead or read because they're completely yeah. separate words. Right. And there are lots of times where that mispronunciation could then lead to a lot of miscommunication. Yeah. Because you might actually be saying a real word, but using the wrong consonant and <laughs> the whole meaning of the sentence changes. So, what activities have you done, or what little things have you done, advice or tips, um, that you've given your students to help them really grasp how to correctly say English words? Uh, well, I actually have a game that oh, I play with my students, and I brought an example. So, yeah. it's, it's a tree, Okay. and you do it with pairs of words that sound similar. So, for every pair, they can either go left or right, Okay. and after four pairs, they'll end up in a city listed at the top. I see. So you know if they heard you correct if they end up in the, in the correct city. city. So for example, it would be like man and men. Okay. And do they go left or right? Based if you said man or men. And then pen, pan, lend, land, oh. sand, send, if it's an a, a one. Oh, right? Okay. And they'll either end up, I don't know, in Cape Town or Mexico City. And you can reverse it where they're saying it. Right. So then how well are they saying it for you to get to the right place? Right, right. Good. I like that. It's like a game twist off of just like sort of minimal pairs. Yeah. yeah. I also Ish. really like it because I use minimal pairs as well, but not with this kind of game element. Sometimes maybe if it's a group class, I can have like two teams and then we'll have a minimal pair said aloud and then they have to write which one they know, mm. which one they think it is rather. Mm. But I think this is more consistent for each student though mm. because with the group game, only really one student is doing anything at one time. Mm. So I really like that. Yeah, that's good. And I've done like 15 rounds of it. You have to prepare the words you're doing in advance, obviously, right. but uh, I've had students who absolutely love doing this because cool. it's a test for them, so they want to be the best. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I imagine it feels so much more challenging to participate in that game than to participate even in a small group doing minimal pairs. For me, I think one of the biggest um, ways to correct pronunciation that, that I think actually works is just kind of playing dumb, pretending you actually don't understand mm. when the student makes a mistake. So for example, if a student, if a student produces a, a B where there should be a V, and maybe that is a minimal pair, then you might, you might just pretend to be really confused, like, oh, why are we talking about a bat? I thought we were talking about a vat. Right. And, then, and if you're really good at it, the student won't think you're being patronizing, right? and they won't, um, they'll actually kind of make the connection that, oh, this is a case where my pronunciation has affected my meaning, and yeah. that's, what, that's how they learn. 
Because a lot of times, what teachers tend to do is be like, oh, I understand what you're saying, but you're actually not saying it correctly. And then the student kind of thinks like, oh, well, you know, you understand me, so what's the problem? Why are you such a stickler? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you actually get lost, that's when I think they really kind of see the value of it and actually learn. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's how children learn as well. Right. So that's a more natural process, I think, mm -hmm. as well. It's interesting that you, you say sort of that excuse that, that students would say to their teachers, like, oh, well, you understand me anyway. And then you get to a point where students sort of say, the difficult part about learning English, or one of the difficult parts, <laughs> is my teacher understands me, and I understand my teacher perfectly. But then when I go outside of the classroom and I use that language with anyone else, there's huge communication breakdowns, and I don't understand what's going on. And you really address that in your comment by saying, you know, we, we kind of are trained to know what our students are trying to say and help them along and clarify things. But when we sort of force ourselves to act as just another English speaker, I mean, most English speakers wouldn't understand. Right. So yeah, I think that's, that's a really good tip. It reminds me of one of, in my first job, I was just a, like an intern in the TESOL department, kind of, and we had these free classes that like any student in Seattle could like come do, and we had this Russian woman who was way above all the other students, and she, you know, she had a really good vocabulary, and just her pronunciation was an issue, and, and she was pretty good at getting her meaning across most of the time, so I asked her, you know, these are like... These are like just off the boat immigrants who don't speak English, and wow. yet there's you as well. Why are you here? And she told me, because in Russia, I was a heart surgeon, and I was really well respected. And here in America, I go to the store, I try and buy like an apple, and people talk to me like I'm a child, you know? Mm -hmm. And I know it's because of my pronunciation and my, my grammar mistakes that they think I'm stupid. Right. And so I just don't want to be seen as stupid, right. you know? Right. And I think that's a... It's hard to explain that to a student, like, people will respect you more when you have good pronunciation and good yeah. grammar, but, but I think that when they experience it firsthand, they do feel a difference. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, when we were talking about the ED pronunciation, I've encountered intermediate, upper intermediate, and advanced level students that still make those mistakes, and I've told them, that cheapens your English. You speak beautifully, aside from that pronunciation error. And it just totally drives down the quality of your, your language. So it is an important thing to correct, you know? I think feeling stupid is such a big part of, <laughs> of learning another language and can be such a motivator to continue learning because you want to get past that hump where you stop feeling stupid. <laughs> yeah. and it's so hypocritical as well yeah. because how many Americans can fluently speak another language or right. even speak any of another language right. and yet it's just a natural process that when we see someone who does it, who's struggling with language, we treat them like a child. Yeah, you know? it's sad. Yeah. Well, I have a friend who's a fluent English speaker but he occasionally will make pronunciation errors mm -hmm. and he's also a doctor. He wants to do a residency in the US mm -hmm. and I told him he has to correct those mistakes yeah. because as a doctor, as a professional, if he does that in the U.S., people will think he's uneducated. Yeah. Not that it's his third language. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Going back to sharing some of those activities and tips and things um, to help students, one of the things I like to do is really sort of show students what your, I guess, mouth position 
um, should really be, where your tongue is, um, if it's forward in your mouth, if it's closer back to the back of your mouth, if it's up, um, touching the roof, roof of your mouth, what your teeth are doing, how open your mouth is, and things like that. I like using that as a tool to really help to teach pronunciation, because I think so often if we don't know that these games work or minimal pair activities work, um, really our first go-to is just modeling, right? No, it sounds like this, young, not jung. And they need to know how to make that sound, yuh, not juh. Um, and it has to do with different parts of their mouth touching or not touching. Spanish speakers are fortunate with when they're learning English with certain sounds because a lot of the sounds that they don't have in Spanish, the th, the, the, all these sounds use your lips and your teeth, so they're pretty easy for them to visualize and like, right. well, look, you can I can just show you how to say th, right. the, I should see your teeth when you say the, right. but yeah, for like the J, you really, you can't see the no. difference there. Um, in the past I've used, uh, I think they're called sagittal views, Okay. and that's like, a dissection of the mouth, mouth yeah. yeah. So oh, they can see exactly where the back of the tongue is. Yeah. Um, another really good thing is if you know, um, if you know what the place of articulation of a consonant is, you can you can kind of explain it in terms of other consonants. That is to say, like um, when we think of the sound wo, like the w, mm. we tend we typically think of that sound as happening in the lips. But actually, that happens in two places in the mouth. The mm -hmm. first place happens if you're with your lips, but also um, the back of your tongue should be raised up to the velum, like almost with a K sound. Yeah. And that's something you can't see. So. And you can feel that yeah, if you yeah. like. I just made that shape, I guess, getting yeah. ready to say "woo." Mm. You can sort of feel the back of your tongue going out. That's such a good example. So. Yeah. If if there's a sound that they're struggling with. You can often say, like, um, start with, like, for example, with TH, start with the, and then move your tongue forward a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so sometimes with, like, voiced and non-voiced sounds, so, mm -hmm. like, the difference between uh, think and the, mm -hmm. and if they put their hand yeah. on their throat, it becomes immediately clear to them what yeah. sound they're making. Right. And that can help a lot, too. Yeah, between the vibrations yeah. or, like, lack of vibration. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to have that kind of, making those sounds more physical instead of abstract mm -hmm. by doing those physical things. So I also like using uh, rubber bands for uh, showing the stress of vowels, opening a rubber band and closing it when it's a short vowel. Or something oh. like uh, certain aspirated sounds in English, if you use like a tissue paper or something like that, something light that can move. Mm -hmm. So when they see like the they can see it moves. Yeah. So they're like, yeah. oh, right, I have to make the air go out of my mouth with yeah, some force. Yeah. Right. So it's just showing them that physical element that really helps them say, okay, it's not just these weird sounds, there's things that are physically... Mechanics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I like those little tips. Again, very simple little things, but I think the visualization of a sound is really important. I, I learned from watching a video by Adrian Underhill. He does this one-hour session on the different formations of your mouth in order to make English sounds. And he brings in, like, the phonetic chart, which everyone sort of, like, feels creeped out by because they realize, oh, God, I don't know that off by heart or I've never used that in class. 
even if you've never seen it before, he totally teaches you the setup, like why the chart is set up in a specific way um, based on it goes from one side being all these sounds on the far left side are made by your mouth being open and as you go towards the right side your mouth closes to make all the sounds on the right side and so on and so forth. It's just very interesting. He, he never really makes any sounds while he's teaching the pronunciation. He just shows you the openness of your mouth and where your tongue is sort of positioned. And sometimes he explains a little bit when you can't see what's happening with your tongue inside your mouth. And it's really quite impressive. It was sort of that moment that I realized maybe this is the best way for me uh, to teach pronunciation because it really made sense. So if you're interested in watching it, I'll include the link in the podcast explanation. Another thing that I've encountered that students do is they tend to think that maybe they're special and they just can't make that sound. Like, oh, yeah. everybody knows someone who says, oh, I just can't roll my R's. It's yeah. just not possible for me. Right. But, like, to say that would be like saying that the tip of your tongue has been chopped off. Right. And then you wouldn't be able to say D or T sounds either, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true that some people do have a predisposition for difficulty with R's, but, like, a very, very, very small percentage of the population, mm. right? But the reality is that that sound represents one of the more difficult sounds of Spanish. Mm. Even kids, and even Spanish-speaking kids, don't learn that until they're, like, seven years old sometimes. Yeah. So it's just a difficult sound, and it's easy to say, oh, I just can't do it. Mm. Um, and I think that I've seen that so many times, like, yeah. oh, I just, I just can't make that sound. Mm. I can't hear the difference. I can't. My mouth just won't do it. Yeah. And it's a matter of saying to students, yes, you can. Every student, every, every human has the same mouth. Yeah. You, you can do it. If you say that you can't, you're just kind of giving yourself an, an easy out, an excuse. Yeah. You know? So I think, hold them responsible for their pronunciation, I think. Yeah. Uh, in, a, in a positive way. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, I like that kind yeah. of like, you know. And when you use that technical explanation of a sound, it sort of shows them, like, oh, you have the tools. You have yeah. the tongue, you have the places <laughs> have in the mouth to do it. Yeah, 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 good point. Another thing that I think is really good, if you can do it, is trying to use the resources they have already in Spanish and applying those to English. And that's difficult. I don't even really speak Spanish. I've got, like, Duolingo on my phone, so I'm getting, I'm, you know, learning a little bit. But, but um, I learned the word for gold. I think it's oro, right? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, good. Um, So one of my students is really, really low level, just a beginner, and we were practicing making simple questions, and it's like, what is your name? And he said, what is your name, you know? Mm. And I could see what was happening right away. I thought, okay, so he sees you, and then we just add the R, and it's your, so he doesn't think we just change the vowel, he thinks we just tag on a consonant. Right. And of course, in Spanish, you can do that, pur, right? Right. But in English, the R totally changes the vowel. Mm. So um, what I did was I wrote down oro on the board. I'm like, look, see, it's your, like oro. The yeah. vowel's totally the same, even though every other thing is different. Right. And that helped him kind of see what was happening there. Cool, so yeah. I think if you know where those sounds, if you know a little bit of Spanish, don't be afraid to use that in the classroom. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to speak Spanish. But some teachers like to totally keep it a secret that they know any Spanish at all, right. you know, to remove that temptation. So right. <laughs> I think that's a difficult one to implement. Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's a fine balance mm-hmm. there.
of when to introduce it. But I do like that idea of using Spanish as a tool for the students, like encouraging them to realize that it is a tool for them, not necessarily a tool that you will always bring to class with you as a teacher, but it's a tool that they automatically have and they can tap into that when it makes sense. Anything else you'd like to share? I mean, I have a book I don't know, called Learner English, A Teacher's Guide to Interference and Other Problems. Ooh. And it's by Swan Michael and Bernard Smith. Okay. And I used it in um, my English teaching course, and it's actually great for a lot of different languages. It has large sections on like German speakers, Spanish speakers, Russian speakers, and it goes through a variety of problems they may be having, not just pronunciation, like issues they might have with different tenses and things right. like that, and it gives you advice on a couple ways that you can deal with each of those areas. And you can find it online in a PDF form for free. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for suggesting that. I have one more. Yeah. Um, Siri Tongue Twisters. I posted it to the Google Drive for yeah. TLC teachers. Yeah. And this is great because tongue twisters are so easy to make. You can you can find where your student's problem is, like if it's a B and a V. You just have to find words that have a lot of Bs and Vs and make a sentence together. Right. And then um, the reason that you use Siri is because uh, Siri doesn't have that element of being an experienced English teacher who uses lots of scaffolding to get the meaning across and will give the student credit when we know what they're trying to say. Siri will just listen to what they're saying and make an educated guess. So if there's lots of minimal pair possibilities there and they do make mistakes, Siri will show it. So what you do is just give them a list of tongue twisters and you say like, okay, don't tell them to me, go home and practice with Siri until Siri understands you. And, you know, I've seen students totally obsess about it, and do it for hours. <laughs> and sometimes it works out like they just give up, but sometimes they really do learn, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's good, too, because I, I, I don't want to sit there for two hours. <laughs> I, I just feel bad after a while. Like, yeah, okay, close enough. You're getting better. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Siri is a robot, and she has no heart, no soul. Exactly. <laughs> you know? That's so. such a good way to take out that teacher element. Mm. Yeah. And the students, like... When they do finally get Siri to understand what they're saying, they like screenshot it and they send me a message afterwards like, I finally did it! And they're so excited. And so it's a, I think it's a good game for them. That's cool, yeah. Good suggestions. Well, thank you so much, guys, for participating, sharing your experience and knowledge about this topic. It's fantastic to hear. And